I'm a data enthusiast. I love data, but I also want to make sure that it's not used to oppress or harm others. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I have a longtime interest in data visualization for politics and policy. My guest today, Sarah Williams, is the director of the Civic Data Design Lab at MIT and associate professor of technology and urban planning. With her team at the Civic Data Design Lab, she collects and synthesizes data into tools that have a public benefit. A lot of her work ends up displayed in museums. Sarah is the author of the new book, Data Action, Using Data for Public Good, in which she discusses the opportunities and pitfalls of that kind of work. She worked on the Million Dollar Blocks Project, for example, which visualized the cost of incarceration by showing how much different city blocks were costing to incarcerate the people who had lived there. We spoke about her book, her work, and her path to her current position. She's very interesting. You should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Sarah Williams at the Civic Data Design Lab at MIT. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Sarah, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. You tell an academic to give you a quick biography. <laughs> <laughs> That's so hard for any of us to do. But um, <laughs> my name is Sarah Williams, and I am currently an associate professor of technology and urban planning at MIT. I also run the Civic Data Design Lab, uh, which is a research lab um, that focuses on using data data analytics to change policy. And one of the uh, many tools in our wheelhouse is uh, visualizations and communicating through visualizations. But a lot of what my book, current book, Data Action, talks about is some of the other ways in which you can use data to create action in civil society. I have a background in geography landscape architecture, um, and urban planning, and data science. And I think that part of what's unique about uh, the work that we do in the lab is really that I bring together all those skills to really try to create uh, the change that I want to see in the world. So excited to be able to be a multidisciplinary academic. That's where I think some of the most interesting work happens is in the overlap between disciplines, isn't it? 
Absolutely. And I think that's something that MIT is thinking more and more about. Um, I don't know how much you've heard about the College of Computing that we're starting, but um, the premise of it is really to think about how we can train people to be more multidisciplinary. How did you pick geography as one of the things you studied as an undergrad? Super interesting field, but what caused you to pick it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a question people always have for me because, you know, geography isn't a big thing that we study in the U.S. I mean, in the U.K. and Europe, it's still very prominent. But I think I've always been interested in how people relate to place. It's something, a curiosity I had since a kid. Um, my parents were journalists, um, so we were always talking about, I think, the city and society. And I think at the essence, geography is that. I think I was very lucky to go to a school that had a geography department because it really uh, combines both my interest in people, space, but also, you know, a bit of math, which was something that I was really interested in as an undergrad. I started as a math major and then found that geography and spatial analysis um, and some of the computer mapping allowed me to apply some of my math skills to problems that I was really interested in in the world itself. In 1990, I worked for a redistricting data firm and helped build databases that sat behind democratic groups that were drawing lines. And we got to, we had GIS and a lot of geographers working there, matching precinct boundaries to uh, census and things like that. I assume that you got going on GIS as an undergrad because you were doing that both in school and out? Yes, yes. It's an interesting story. So at my university, I went to Clark University, and Clark started one of the first uh, GIS companies. Um, if you learned GIS in the 90s or late 80s, 90s, you probably learned it on a software called Adresi. And Adresi was produced at my university. And I thought it was just the coolest thing. I started packing boxes there and I worked my way up to answering the phones, then tech support. The head of the company just thought I would be a great programmer and taught me to program one summer. And then I became a programmer. I always say I went at every job at that company, but um, I think it was one of the greatest experiences and definitely is part of how I ended up where I am now, being able to have that experience at Clark. There's nothing like really learning a tool like that. What was your first jobs coming out of Clark? When I graduated from Clark, I worked for Adresi uh, for a couple of years as a GIS programmer. And then I also worked on some of their projects with the World Food Program to identify areas that were at risk for drought um, using El Nino, La Nina studies and, you know, recommending that aid be sent to those places ahead of time. And then from there, I went to a landscape architecture school, and then I worked as a landscape architect using some of the GIS skills that I developed um, while at Adresi and continued to work with them as a landscape architect. So a lot of what I did 
as a landscape architect was really identify wetlands for restoration projects, but also uh, identify areas for green roof projects, lots of different things that uh, needed data to identify the uh, target locations. Did you work also at the EPA for a bit? I was a manager for a grant at the Philadelphia Water Department. We had a grant from the EPA. Um, Actually, this is an interesting story is that around the time that I worked for the Philadelphia Water Department, they started reorganizing water departments. So looking at um, how to manage our streams as a watershed, and we created something at the water department called the Office of Watershed that very much mimicked um, an EPA structure. But the grant that we got from the EPA is the basis for Philadelphia's stormwater tax. We had this idea that if we could tax people for stormwater runoff, so if you had extra impervious surfaces, let's say like a big parking lot, and that water ran off into the streams, it helps contribute to pollution. So if you could have less of that runoff, it would be beneficial to uh, the water department. So we created a tax which encouraged land-based solutions for mitigating stormwater runoff. And that was the grant that I worked on. That initial grant was kind of the spark. So essentially, if you have less pervious surface, you get a credit um, on your water bill. Um, And it all started from that grant. That's cool. How did you find yourself at MIT? So I was working as a landscape architect on this uh, water department project, and I really missed uh, doing research. So I started to work at MIT as a GIS programmer, and I enjoyed being a landscape architect, but I realized I was, let's say, missing some of the broader research effects that I could have one thing that I discovered in my work in the water department was that I was really doing urban planning. So I went back to MIT to see, you know, how could I work in research around policy? Um, And so I took a job with actually the MIT library starting up their GIS lab. And at that time, the GIS lab would help researchers with different projects that they had going on and then really that got me excited about going to planning school. And eventually I went to MIT for my urban planning degree. Having already had a architecture background um, and geography background, I really sought out diverse classes in technology. Um, I kind of really took a survey of things across campus that I was interested in to create what I thought would be, let's say, a more technology-designed focus um, on looking at policy issues. What do you think was the biggest thing you took away from that degree program? I know this is going to sound funny, but um, I think the biggest thing that I learned is really um, how to collaborate with others. (laughs) Um, And I know that sounds like not what you would expect you would learn from MIT, but At its heart, planning really is about negotiating between diverse groups, you know, um, the developers, um, politicians, the communities. There's lots of tensions that come up in any urban planning project. And I think 
you know, the work, the studies that I did in MIT's department really taught me to work with diverse groups, including my colleagues that, you know, and peers that came from all different backgrounds. And the work that we did in the planning department, all of it was super collaborative. So you really had to negotiate your interests with others. And I, I think that's something that um, lasts with me forever and is important. Definitely. What led you to the Spatial Information Design Lab at Columbia? Laura Kurgan from Columbia University contacted me um, while I was at MIT. Uh, she said that she is starting up the Spatial Information Design Lab and would I be a co-director with her. She was working on a project called the Million Dollar Blocks, which was a project that looked at the high rates of incarceration in the U.S. And I was just really excited about working with her on that project. But also, it really felt like um, this is my chance to start what I really had wanted when I went to school. So I felt so lucky to be offered this position at that time because the Spatial Information Design Lab at its heart was really thinking about how to bring design um, and science together to communicate diverse urban strategies. It was a no-brainer that I would be interested in that project. I should say, you know, at the time that I got the job offer at Columbia, I was also when Google Maps was starting, and I had also had gotten a job offer from Google Maps. So it was just like the first, first, I mean, we can't imagine not having Google Maps now, but um, it was just when it was launching and I had a hard decision of whether to go to the lab or work for Google Maps. But I think in the end, really, I made the right decision because my passion, as I mentioned earlier, was I really wanted to change the world and really elevate those on the margins. And I think that the Spatial Information Design Lab gave me the opportunity to do that. For people who don't know, who is Laura Kurgan? Laura Kurgan is an associate professor of architecture at Columbia University. Her background is really as an artist, but she's very interested in maps as well. Um, and um, I think this is why she started the Spatial Information Design Lab or why we started it together. You keep alluding to this desire to, I don't know, make the world a better place uh, and pay attention to people who are maybe overlooked in how you work. And that becomes a theme later in, in your book and so on. What's driving that? Where's that coming from? Yeah. I mean, I've been reflecting on that a lot recently and I definitely, I think, it does come from my parents who were journalists and I definitely think journalists think of themselves in this way is that it's our responsibility to expose issues to, I would say it's like civic service. Um, and I think that kind of service really comes from growing up and basically growing up in a newsroom. Who are your parents? Uh, so my dad uh, is Larry Williams. He was uh, the business editor for the Philadelphia Inquirer and then head of the Knight Ritter Washington Bureau uh, for a while. He also was a managing editor of the Akron Beacon Journal. And my stepmother, 
Her name is Marsha Myers. Um, and she uh, worked for the Baltimore Sun for 20 years. And her, her last job there was also managing editor. Um, and then she went on to work uh, for Bloomberg News as the head of uh, the international section in London. Got it. So you guys formed that spatial information design lab that you're founders of it? Yes. What, what did you learn from trying to build a, an organization like that? So, uh, sort of the entrepreneurship involved. Any academic will tell you it's exciting to um, pitch your ideas for research and have people to be interested in that. Like anything that you start in the world, um, it takes a lot of hard work and dedication. But I think that the payoffs were always there. That's why I keep doing what I do. <laughs> One of the things that I thought about when I started in the lab is really let's take risks. Let's, you know, that's a great opportunity of being in academia as you have that ability to take risks with your ideas and really try new things. And, you know, I just was really excited that each time it paid off. <laughs> <laughs> what was the, your favorite project there? The Million Dollar Blocks project is one that uh, is a favorite, perhaps only because it still resonates with people today. We took data about where people lived before they went to prison and mapped it out and then added up block by block how much it costs to incarcerate people and found that many blocks in New York City and in 15 other cities that we looked at, over a million dollars is spent to incarcerate people from just one block. But those same city blocks don't have the kinds of social services that would alleviate the reasons that they would be in prison. You might be able to spend that money better, in other words. Exactly. You could spend that money better on schools, uh, health care, many of the systemic reasons that uh, elevated crime might be happening. It was an image on a map that you know everybody could relate to the idea of a block that we spend a million dollars in just one block is something that people can conceptualize. I think we often know that we spend a lot of money on the prison industrial complex. It's very hard sometimes to come up with a way to dramatize something like that, to do it visually, to bring data together. Do you have suggestions about how to go through that process to get to something like that concept? Yeah. One of the things that I tell my students all the time is the data will tell you what it wants to be. And I know that sounds really silly and abstract, but I think that as you ask questions of your data and you begin to map it out and you begin to talk with the community members about your results and people who are in the know, you will ultimately really see quickly what story you need to tell. An example with the million dollar blocks is that 
you know, we know that we spend a lot of money in prison. We know that it's an issue, you know, everybody kind of, but like people can't, let's say, personalize it, that people can't take it down to their community. And that's really, you know, where we started with that project. I guess it sounds very abstract to say that, but I think it's about experimenting. But when you ask others, they always tell you what they don't understand. And it makes it much more clear what you need to do in order to communicate it to them. Makes sense. What was or is Envelope? Envelope is uh, a startup that I co-founded. And Envelope allows you to visualize zoning rules in New York City. So if you're not familiar with New York City zoning, it's super complex. Um, And the zoning rules lay in 4,000 pages of zoning text that the city has developed. And whenever somebody buys a property, they need to, let's say, dissect this code. Um, And you usually have to hire somebody to do that work for you. So we thought, could we really visualize this zoning code, make it accessible to everyone? How did that all come about? Um, That was a project um, I did with Greg Prascarelli from Shop Architects. If you're not familiar with Shop Architects, they built Barclays Center, uh, which is the arena um, in Brooklyn. Um, They're a very big firm here in the city. You know, Greg, every time he gets a project, he has to really dissect this zoning code. And I did a lot of data analytics work for Greg. And he said, you know, couldn't we just translate this um, and visualize it somehow? And so uh, we started to work together to figure out um, a way to do that. Help me understand that. Let's say I want to, you know, change a building or build a new building somewhere in Manhattan. What do I see visually? What of the zoning code is translated and how? If you're on a wide street, you can build a different building. If you're on a narrow street, you can build a different part of a building. If you're on a corner, you can have a certain height. Um, If you're 100 feet from a park, you have a kind of different parameters. If you're in an M2 residential, you can build four stories, but you might be able to buy air rights from the building next door. But also you might have an additional rights for affordable housing. It gets really complicated very quickly, right? Is that something where you import and process all of that data? How do you keep it up to date? Envelope is made up of three components. One is a zoning rules database, which has all of the rules for each thousands of different manifestations of the code. And then it has a spatial database, which really marks where all of those thousands of rules intersect. And then a third component, which is a 3D engine that then spatializes those two rules together in three dimensions. Is it a viable business? Is it something that you can now use elsewhere? How's it doing? Yes, absolutely. It's a viable business. Um, Right now, um, we're using it also to acquire property. So if you can imagine, if you know all the zoning rules across the city, and then you know where they're being used the most, 
um, or not being used, those could be target sites for acquisition, right? So that means you have a lot of free development rights. And because we created this database, now we can actually see across the city where there's available development rights, which couldn't be seen before. So most of what we do is actually use it quite a bit for acquisitions. And it is very scalable to other cities. And we've been talking about bringing it to other cities, although we haven't done that yet. How did you find yourself after Columbia back at MIT? MIT uh, had a position open for an assistant professor and um, really recruited me to come back, which I was really excited about, um, to start my own lab there, which is called the Civic Data Design Lab. I loved Columbia, I have to say. It was a great experience and loved the work that I got to get involved in there. Um, But I just thought it was a great opportunity, not only to grow my own lab, but also to take advantage of just the wonderful faculty that we have on campus and the international nature of MIT as well uh, to bring some of my projects to other countries. Um, It just felt like a great opportunity. So how does that happen when they want you to start a lab? Do they provide the funding? Do you have to raise some funding? How do you hire? How do you get students attached to it? How, How do you get that going? Of course, I went through a hiring, you know, a competitive process to get hired. But um, I think it's very similar to any professor at MIT where they give you some startup funds. But it's up to you to really uh, get grants going and bring work into the lab itself. So what are some of the projects that you've done at this Civic Data Design Lab? So I think one of the biggest projects in the lab uh, that people are familiar with is a project called Digital Matatus, which I just realized has been going on now since since my the first days I started at MIT and continues, even though I've done other projects there. This one has a life that's very long and I'm very proud of. So this project, um, I've been working in Nairobi for some time and I did a lot of transportation models for the city of Nairobi when I was at uh, Columbia. But one of the things that we never had uh, was information on matatus, which are the main form of public transit in Nairobi. They're uh, semi-formal buses, so they don't have, let's say, a public bus system, but they have these private buses that really provide mobility. And they represent close to 80% of the cars on the roadway. So you can imagine why that would be important to have the location of those uh, for my model. So we decided to create a cell phone app that would collect the stops and routes of these uh, informal buses using volunteers who rode on the buses and using you know, the fact that many people in Nairobi use cell phones for everything. Um, And then we made the data in a format called GTFS, which um, allowed it to be uploaded to Google Maps. And it became the first informal transit system uh, available in Google. And we also created a map um, of the system for the city. 
I think what's exciting about the project is not just that we did this in Nairobi, but the work that we did there sparked cities all over the world to create their own maps. And we've helped now over 46 cities in our network. We, I mean, we haven't done the maps for all of that, those cities, but from Amman to Managua um, have taken and used inspiration from our project to, to make their own maps and get their data into Google Maps. If you're not familiar with these small kinds of buses, you know, most of the world has them, right? It's just in the United States and Europe that we have more formal public transit systems. Most cities rely on these informal systems. So creating a cell phone tool that allowed the collection of this data was really impactful. Do you do projects that have to do with civics in the U.S.? Um, I certainly do. I've done a lot of work looking at climate change issues on the coast in New York City. So um, I was involved with something called Rebuild by Design, uh, which looked at New York City after Hurricane Sandy. I've also worked on New York City's regional plan, which includes um, a section on the coast and coastal impact, really how data and analysis gets involved in that is I did a lot of modeling of the costs of climate change, the cost um, for coastal housing, the effects of housing on the coast and economics uh, for those two projects. I also did work with New York City's public schools on data literacy and teaching uh, youth uh, created a program, a mapping project, which taught youth to understand data through maps, because uh, everybody likes to look at maps. But, and I'm always looking for projects that also contribute here in in the U.S. Um, this past summer, we did a lot of work at looking at uh, COVID response, potential inequity in response to COVID. Why did you decide to write a book? Uh, data action. Data action really came from, you know, I saw all this excitement of using data to change society. I think it was really um, something that we got excited about during Obama, the open data movement. We had civic hackers, but not only that, we have places like IBM and Cisco that were interested in using data or, or at least advertising that were they were using data to create change. And I felt like with all of the excitement, uh, people needed some guidance. I think one thing that, you know, maybe some novices to this in people who are trained as engineers might not have known of the ways that we could use data to harm rather than to use it for good. And I thought having examples of the ways that maybe unintentionally they could use data and ways that could harm people would be beneficial as they set out to do it to use good. How we use data represents the ideologies of the person who is doing the data analysis. No, no matter how much we try to be impartial, people tend to use it for their own political devices. And so really trying to help expose that um, and then show people and give them a pathway to use it for good. 
And so at the end of the book, really, I come up with seven principles of using uh, data for a public good. Um, and one of the first ones is start by uh, investigating the potential for your data analysis to do harm to others or to investigate the harm that others might be doing with data. And I think that's one thing that wasn't really happening in all of this excitement. So I'm I'm a data enthusiast. I love data, but I also want to make sure that it's not used to oppress or harm others. How do you feel then about open data? You were talking about, you know, in Obama and that open data movement. One, how well do you think that did? And two, do you think that's a good form, given that some people out there do like to use things for for bad? Yeah. I mean, I think transparency in government is always good, right? You know, the Obama era open data movement really was an attempt to create that transparency. And I do think that we saw an exponential amount of data being available. And I, I think that's a good thing. I do think, however, that not everyone has access to that open data and not everyone can be data analysis and that's where I think, you know, communication and data visualization is really important. To truly open data up to everyone, we have to make it accessible to them. And for a lot of people, that means through charts, graphs, and maps. And so to be data translators is really part of what I think open data needs to be. There's one thing to open the data up by providing it. Um, online on websites, but there's another to really share it with communities through uh, visualizations and other devices and techniques. When you build visualizations or your team does, what tools do they use? Um, we use all kinds of great tools. Um, I think geography information systems is one. Um, we use maps a lot in our communication because people really relate to maps. Um, they can see themselves in them. If you ever look at a map of your own city, you always want to try to find yourself within it, right? We use um, also D3 uh, programming languages that visualizations on the web, things like Mapbox. Um, and, you know, right now I think D3 and Mapbox is one of our biggest tools because we like to make online um, interactive projects, which allow people to explore the data themselves, right? So while they might not be able to really do the analytics, they might be able to slice and dice the data in numerous ways through interactive visualizations online. When you look around at the landscape of groups doing things like you do, who else do you think is doing good work? Oh, gosh, there's so many good people doing different and good work in this area. Open Street Maps, I guess this one. Open Street Maps is a group that's uh, mapping the world and making that data open source and sort of a competitor to maps.google.com. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> but you know, it's free and open source. It's not Google. Not many people know, but they have humanitarian open street maps, which really works humanitarian issues. Um, and they also get involved a lot of times in mapping during disasters. 
humanitarian open street maps is not just one organization, but it's lots of organizations, whether it's the Red Cross or uh, the World Food Program and others that are responding to important issues um, in society. So as a, as a, a group or a whole, I think that's a, a great example. What, what's another group that comes to mind? I think in terms of, let's say, like thinking about design or like the design issues, uh, Stamen Design um, in San Francisco is a good example um, of a group that that does interesting work in this area. I'm not sure that they're as interested in issues on the margins of society, but more um, thinking about how to communicate data uh, more broadly. Certainly, my former research lab, the they're now the Center for Spatial Research at Columbia, is uh, a group that does a lot of work similar to what we do. Right now, we, we have kind of central to the consciousness of a lot of people in the U.S., a big data issue with with the voting returns, where they're being contested at the highest level. And where they are open to a certain degree, but not not all details. When you think about that problem, do you think about ways we could improve transparency and have people look at things visually to create more confidence in the system? Yeah, I think it's really interesting that confidence has been broken. <laughs> I think it hasn't been until recently that we didn't trust our voting system. <laughs> It's being deliberately beat up. We know that. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it just goes to show how constantly putting a message out there can really change people's minds. So I think that probably the issue is more how much we've been swayed by just lies. And I know that sounds like a weird way to address it, but... There's a propaganda problem. And there's also big a, a data issue around misinformation, disinformation, right? Is that something that you guys contend with at all? Yes, I mean, absolutely. Like one of the things I was thinking about the most after the election is how could so many people actually believe that this election was false or was it true? And and how, where did their data come from? Where was their evidence? And the evidence remarkably was there. It was just false, right? So they had people they trusted telling them lies and they believed them to be true. And they believed them to be true because it was people they trusted telling them that, right? Like their congressmen or you know, the news agency that they came from. And so I think this fake news is something that I really am interested in visualizing. I think that certainly we can get the numbers out quicker and faster and we can see the results, but I think what's actually happening is fake data, fake information. And if we could expose that issue, we could do a lot more to creating trust in the system. There's this tension, I think, whenever you're talking about open data and, and the government between uh, you know, a part of the government that might theoretically want to share all their information, like, I don't know, they're processing visas or something, and, they're, and there's a backlog, 
they get harassed a lot. People take things out of context. People use it to beat up on them and try to lower their budget. There's a lot of risk to being open. How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that is always the argument from any agency um, that, you know, the more open they are, the more they open themselves up to criticism. But I think isn't that kind of criticism what makes or improves their um, services? One of the first acts Obama put into place as president was this open transparency and openness in government. When you read his writings about it, one of the things that he says is that, you know, having an engaged society, understanding the process of government creates a better democracy. I would argue that those kinds of criticism is what makes us a better democracy. It certainly seems to improve the like lines at the Motor Vehicle Bureau when they're forced <laughs> to report out what they're actually doing, right? Exactly. And have if you haven't been to the Motor Vehicle, it's been a lot better lately, I'd have to say. <laughs> if you were going to suggest what people who are interested in this field ought to read beyond your book, what else are some really good works in this area of kind of the intersection between data, data viz, data analytics, and public good? Um, I think my colleague Catherine D'Ignazio's book, uh, Data Feminism, is a great book. I think she has many similar ideas as comes out in Data Action, but she talks about how to use uh, feminist ideals when approaching data analytics. Um, I think that's a great one. One of my favorites, all-time favorites, uh, is How to Lie with Maps. <laughs> um, I have that book. Yep. Do you have that book? I do. I love that book. I think it's just like such a good, a good book. There's a book called Seeing Like the State, um, which talks a lot about how we use data and governance over time. I think it's a really great, great book if you're interested in this. There's this book called Rethinking Maps by Martin Dodge, which is um, interesting. The Power of Maps. That's a really good one as well. When I was an undergraduate, I took a class with Edward Tufte. What do you think of his books? Oh, yeah, I think Tufty's books are really great at showing you examples of good visualizations. And I use many of the examples from his books. Everybody should have a Tufty book and read it. <laughs> Although I feel like Tufty doesn't get deep into the theory. I definitely think it's important to look at his books because I think he put together some really great projects. For example, you know, you see the first example of a chart that I think is dated to like 1780s. And it's so amazing to me that a chart wasn't invented to the 1780s. Like, you know, like you play fair. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like you would have thought that that would have, you know, like it took us to the 1780s to represent data as a chart. <laughs> you know, when, when I took that class with him, which was like 87 or something, what we studied was called either data analysis or statistics. Now people talk about data science. What is data science? How is that different? 
I mean, I think data science is really statistics. Uh, I agree with you. <laughs> if you look at like the frequency of the terms and like the n-gram reader for Google or something, it just took off as a term, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago and, and sort of became what people want to study and you can take courses in it. There are some differences, but I mean, at the heart of any data science program, you really need to understand statistics and working with numbers. And so statistics is a big thing that data scientists use. But I think we're also getting into issues of machine learning and AI. But, you know, at the heart of those is also statistics. People forget that. Um, And I think reframing everything under data science allowed people to understand that you're working with diverse and big data sets. You could be applying machine learning. You could be applying AI. You could be just doing a simple regression. It's a broader field. Statisticians might not agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) And I definitely work with, you know, a lot of statisticians at MIT, right? And they're doing, you know, a lot more than data scientists are doing. So I, so it, it depends on who you ask, perhaps, but I think um, it allowed data science to be a field that's more marketable outside of us, just this traditional kind of statistics uh, understanding. Sarah, when you teach, what do you teach? I teach geography information systems, and I teach Big Data Visualization and Society, which is really a class that teaches uh, people how to translate data into stories or narratives. It's almost like a uh, data journalism class. We try to create stories like you might see in the New York Times. I teach something called Crowdsource City, which I call a civic technology class. And we work with clients in that class to build technology for cities. So sometimes it's apps, um, things to help people figure out which public school they should send their kids to. Um, we even included um, some of these apps for collecting public transport. So we work with different people all the time. So it's, let's say, a software for cities class. And then I teach um, a class called Data and Society. I would consider it an ethics class, a data ethics class, and how data affects society more generally. And I teach that with Eden Medina um, from our science, technology, and society program. I'm glad that uh, some MIT people are learning that stuff. No, it's fantastic. I love having, and it's an undergrad class, so it's great uh, for them to learn some of the ethics behind AI. I think the students are fascinated by it. And I think we need more ethics classes um, at MIT in general. So I'm excited that they're interested in it. Yeah. Um, I saw that some of your work finds its way into museums. What what kind of work does? I would say that every project that I work on has, let's say, the academic research question, um, but then always involves a communication piece because I'm interested in communicating to broad publics. So a lot of the projects that have that communication piece do find their way in museums. And that's something that I work towards um, always in every project. And I feel lucky that almost every big project that's come through the lab has had 
a piece in a museum or a gallery. And that's the idea of bringing it to people who not, might not see things that are in academic journals. That's really what we hope to do. I asked a friend what I should ask you. They said, well, there's this pyramid that some people talk about where you go from data information to knowledge to wisdom. And I wondered if that framework at all, you think about that all, about how do you go from data to wise action in areas that you've tackled? Yes, that pyramid um, is something that I talk a lot about. One reason I talk about it is because people often think, you know, data is the raw piece of it. And it certainly is, but you know, somebody came up with the questions to make that data. So it even goes beyond that. So I'm always telling people to think about how the questions that made that raw data set, as it were, might influence the results. But that's an aside. I think I think one of the main frameworks that I try to take data into, let's say, insights or wisdom, as 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 you said, is really building collaborative teams to ask the right questions of the data set and ask them to interpret the results and then uh, visualize those results. Ask them whether that information holds true, iterate, and then ultimately create our data visualization or design. Bringing any data to knowledge should involve these diverse teams because we all hold different perspectives. And that's where sometimes our, let's say, analytics can be misleading because we hold certain biases. Um, so having this diversity helps us to account for some of those biases. Particularly, I think it's important to have people who is represented in the data critique our work. That makes sense. What's the biggest thing on your plate right now? Well, um, right now we are working on two big projects. Um, we're using cell phone records to um, do COVID response in Sierra Leone. Um, and so using data analytics to help them create different safety measures and inform decent policies. And then we're working in Nairobi, uh, Kenya, and we're actually creating community-based uh, Wi-Fi hotspots um, that are designed and built by the community. In fact, just before Christmas, we launched four of those um, in Kibera, uh, which is one of the largest uh, informal settlements in uh, Nairobi. So we're really excited to be bringing internet uh, to an area that desperately needs it under COVID. Wow, sounds interesting. Is there a question that I failed to ask you that I should have? I'm not sure. You asked me a lot of questions. Not a lot of people ask me about my past life. <laughs> um, um, so that was nice. One thing that I do in the beginning of the book, and maybe I didn't explain very well, was really try to create a history of how we've used data for good and bad in society. And I think that history helps inform those who want to use it to do good in the future. Well, I 
really do appreciate your time today and it's an honor to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? No, thanks so much for having me and I hope your throat feels better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it does. Uh, Thank you. That was Sarah Williams. Sarah is at civicdatadesignlab.mit.edu. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.